Hello, you're listening to the New York Public Library podcast, exploring great books and big ideas. My name is Aiden Flax-Clark. I work at the library helping to present discussions about culture, literature, and history to live audiences, and I'm here to share some of those conversations with you on this show. So this is what I really love about getting to put this show together. Last week, we were talking about art and archives with Theaster Gates, and this week, we jumped to a totally different but no less fascinating subject. Soviet history, specifically the history of a famine in the Soviet Union in the early 1930s, and the recently uncovered true story about the atrocities that Joseph Stalin committed upon the people of Ukraine amidst the catastrophe. It's the subject of the most recent book by Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and Washington Post columnist Anne Applebaum. Applebaum is probably best known for her history of the Soviet Gulag, which is called simply Gulag, as well as her book Iron Curtain, The Crushing of Eastern Europe, 1944 to 1956. If you asked why we do an episode on a somewhat specific piece of history that happened in an empire which no longer exists, I'd say you were a reasonable person. And here's what I tell you in response. First of all, the scale of the crime alone makes it one we should not erase from our memories. Around 5 million people died during the Soviet famine between 1931 and 1933, and about 3.9 million of them were Ukrainians. Which wasn't an accident. That's the story Applebaum's book tells. Throughout its entire existence, the Soviet Union denied that there had been a famine at all. And not until Ukraine gained independence in 1991 did its side of the account begin to surface. And the story in Red Famine marks a huge episode and an even huger, longer, complicated narrative of the relationship between Ukraine and Russia that continues literally to today. By the time you hear this, the Ukrainian parliament may have voted on whether or not to cut off diplomatic ties with Russia, a move that the independent in the UK writes would dramatically increase tensions and the possibility of full-scale conflict returning to the troubled East. And since one of history's greatest strengths is its ability to better contextualize the present, it's a story we can't ignore. Anne Applebaum talked with John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary, a magazine to which Anne has been a contributor, which is something they talk about right up front. And we'll get to that and the rest of their conversation right after I remind you that if you haven't subscribed to this podcast yet, get in there to whatever podcatcher you call home and subscribe. Each week, we're going to share one of the fascinating conversations happening somewhere at the library. And throughout the year, you'll get to hear about amazing work from literally some of the most brilliant people you can think of. And besides, where else could you hear from Theastrogates one week and Ann Applebaum the next? And if you're one of those wise people who's already subscribed, why don't you go visit those review sections and give us some stars and say something nice? It really helps the show. All right, let's get to Ann Applebaum and John Podhoritz talking about her book, Red Famine. Okay, so to begin... So two years ago, you contributed an essay to my magazine, Commentary, called Russia and the Great Forgetting. Which was your idea. It was, it's true. But, <laughs> but it was your essay, and you wrote, <laughs> I want to quote, the living memory of the USSR is now truly fading, and the nature of the USSR, its peculiar awfulness, its criminality, its stupidity is becoming harder and harder to explain the sense of being surrounded by lies, the underlying anxiety that someone might be listening or reporting on you, the constant screaming, inescapable propaganda, the sullenness of the crowds on the metro, the memories of mass terror just below the surface, the useful idiots and the cynical sycophants who supported the whole thing both in Russia and abroad, all of that is now absolutely impossible to convey. So it seems to me that this book Red Famine is a heroic effort to fight against this great forgetting because you are using it to establish without question the historical fact of one of the most despicable events ever visited upon a people, something that, as you say at the end of your book, Putin's Russia is once again trying to stuff down the memory hole. So can you tell us the definition and the meaning of the term, I don't know how to pronounce it, Holodomor? Holodomor. So thank you, first of all, for that, that kind introduction, the quotation from the piece in your magazine. Um, and thank you for doing this. Um, I'm an admirer of John Batoritz, and I'm really glad that he's here, and I'm also glad to be here at the New York Public Library. Um, the Holodomor was, is a word that was coined actually um, contemporaneously with the famine. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a neologism. It means death famine or... Um, you know, tor- torture famine, something like that, or death famine is, is, is closer. Um, and it, was, it, was, it was, was a word that was used to describe a particularly killing and a particularly nasty 
um, uh, famine. Um, and it's a, it's a word that Ukrainians have used. It's harder to use in English because um, it's, not a, it's not well known. But I think the sense of it is useful because it conveys why this famine was different. Um, and the point about the Ukrainian famine um, is that it was a famine within a famine. So as the book describes, um, in 1930-31, there, there was chaos all over the Soviet Union. There was um, uh, you know, disarray in the agricultural sector caused by collectivization. And this was Stalin's decision to um, make all peasants in the Soviet Union, not just Ukraine, leave their own homes and farms and abandon their own tractors and, and agricultural equipment and join state farms. And quite a lot of them resisted, sometimes violently. I mean, in Ukraine, there were quite a lot of instances of violent resistance. Um, and a lot of them, um, even when they arrived at the state farms, weren't working or organized in quite the same way. Um, and that caused chaos, it caused hunger, it caused starvation. And in the spring and summer of 1932, people began writing to Stalin from all over the Soviet Union, but in particular from Ukraine, from the high-ranking Ukrainian communists, wrote to him and said, you know, this is disaster, it's all going very badly, but can't you do something to make it better? Um, and Stalin wrestles with these letters and he responds angrily in a couple of cases. Um, and instead of, at this moment when he could have made a decision to do something, and there were, he could have asked for foreign aid, as he had in 1920 and 21 in an earlier famine, or he could have stopped the grain requisitions, stopped ordering peasants to give up their food um, uh, to take to Moscow and St. Petersburg. Um, he could have, um, you know, he could have, he, you know, there were, anyway, he could have stopped grain exports, which were still going on. So there are many steps he could have taken to alleviate the famine. And instead, in the autumn of 1932, he takes, he does the opposite, and he takes a series of decisions that worsen the famine. And they worsen it particularly in Ukraine. Um, they, and these range from um, uh, increasing the requisitions, particularly in spreading it, not just grain, but also to include other kinds of food, um, he, he, he draws a kind of cordon around Ukraine so that people can't leave the republic. Um, and uh, at the height of the, you know, at the, at the height of, um, uh, just as people are really beginning to starve, uh, activist teams are sent into Ukrainian villages and they confiscate everything. So not just grain and not just wheat, but also, you know, beets and peas and um, people's farm animals and sometimes even household pets. Everything is taken out of people's homes. They're then forbidden to leave. The roads are blocked to prevent them from going to the cities. And without any food, they begin to starve. And in the spring of 1933, there's this huge spike in the death rate, specifically in Ukraine. And so the book is a, my book is an explanation of why that happened and why, why he made that decision and what were the consequences of it. But Holodomor um, is a word that captures this kind of famine. So again, it wasn't caused by drought. It wasn't caused by crop failure. It wasn't caused by all the normal things that cause famine. It was caused by people taking other people's food and then leaving them to starve. So you, um, there's an accretion of individual stories from memoirs and things like that in uh, at the center of the book that is very reminiscent of survivor accounts from the Holocaust. It'll if you are familiar with those, um, except for the you know the the regimentation of the camps, the individual stories have that same gut punch effect as you as you read them. You know, you write of parents placing their children in a essentially in a grave outside their home so they won't hear them screaming and won't see them dying. You write these accounts of cannibalism, and you write that these activists, in other words, sort of like you know, ideological, young ideological communists who are sent out to kind of enforce ideology in some sense, um, literally hunted. The starving down. So here's a you you just being alive attracted suspicion. If a family was alive, that meant it had food. But if they had food, then they should have given it up. And if they had failed to give it up, then they were kulaks, uh, wealthier enemies of the people. Enemies of the people. So uh, an activist searching the home of one Mikhailo Balanovsky in Cherkasy province demanded to know. <laughs> 
how is it possible that no one in this family has yet died? So these stories, and there are dozens and dozens of them in the book, indicate that this pincer, this bizarre, and we're, we, we have now since, over the course of the 20th century, now seen this time and time again, right? In Ethiopia, Rwanda, the use of mm. hunger as a hunger and starvation for explicitly political ends, creating this pincer effect where you starve people and then as they're starving, you go in and you kill them as you're starving them. Well, actually, it was Hitler's first, that was Hitler's first idea. I mean, that's what the ghettos were. It's a, you know, the idea that you can deprive people of food and therefore get rid of them was not original to Stalin at all, nor was it unique in the, um, in the 1930s. So it's a, um, it's a, it's a known effect. I mean, um, you know, there are a lot of things, I mean, I, I don't, didn't want to make a direct comparison to the Holocaust. I think these are different events and they deserve to be examined in different ways and the book doesn't do that at all. Um, but, it doesn't. That was my. I'm saying, as a reader, yeah. as a reader, the effect of reading these accounts of people's suffering yeah, yeah. at at the hands of the needless suffering at the hands of the state has that, and the number. So finally, I think at the end of the book, you say that Ukrainian historians have settled on a number around four million, four million people. Sort of exit. People who died, yes, who excess deaths. So excess people, deaths. People in, who in, wouldn't have died that year. In so about I, 18 months, right? Yeah. So so important to say that not all Ukrainians agree about this number. Um, it's a number that demographers came up with. There was a team of demographers who've been funded for a while, who've spent many years going through provincial archives and trying to understand birth and death rates, and who argue actually that... Um, th at that level, the statistics are accurate because these are things that the state would have had to know. Um, there is a there are some people who think the number was higher, um, but these were the numbers that I felt like were the were the best to use. Right, but these are this is a number that dwarfs, you know, almost anything that one can one can imagine. You also point out that um, at the beginning of the famine, uh, if uh, Stalin specifically with his henchman Kaganovich, Lazar Kaganovich, came up with a policy, right? You say, the two of them confirmed one another's views in letters between each other in 1932. Um, the state and its policies were not a danger to the starving peasants, but the starving peasants were a greater danger to the state. So the tiniest amount of food led to a prison sentence of 10 years, and by the end of 1932, 100 thousand Ukrainians had been sent to labor camps, right? And Stalin said to Kaganovich, without such discipline, it is impossible to strengthen and defend our new order. So not only were they starving, the Ukrainians, but they were populating what you're the subject of your book of 2004, the Gulag, right? Yeah, actually, even it's also really important, and the book, um, the book explains this as well, that the, the this attack on the peasants, which um, I assume we'll get to, was was um, you know there were, had, had uh, Stalin had reason to fear the Ukrainian peasants and fear Ukrainian peasant rebellion, was accompanied by uh, at the same time and carried out by the same people by the same secret policemen was accompanied by an assault on. Ukrainian intellectuals, um, uh, you know, uh, writers, artists, museum curators, historians, um, and actually quite a lot of the Ukrainian Communist Party as well. There was a sort of dual um, um, uh, dual attack, both on the peasantry and on the on the the state, the national leadership, um, at the same time. So the famine was kind of part of this two halves of of the story, which were both designed to make sure that Ukraine as a state or as a civilization or as a, as a national group wouldn't pose any kind of threat to Stalin's totalitarian vision. Right. So I should say that you don't even get to the, the material that I've been talking about really until a little more than halfway through the book because you're, you're, what, you, what you attempt to do, I think, right, is to, is to lay out an accounting of the rise of 
what might be considered sort of a Ukrainian national consciousness and this moment in time when uh, the nascent Soviet Union wasn't quite sure whether it wanted to encourage it in order to get the Ukrainians on their side or what, but that there was this post-World War I moment of excitement and uplift that finally Ukraine, which had been subsumed Part in all these other empires. people's countries, would have its own identity. And you lay out this rather remarkable well, portrait of th this. This actually, I mean, I think the th one of the things that makes this book a little different from previous books about the famine is <clears throat> precisely that I started with 1917. And that was, that came as a process, wasn't my original intention, actually. Um, one of the things I, having previously written a book that involved lots of different countries over many years, um, I thought, well, this, at least this story, you know, two years, one country, you know, there's a fairly straightforward way to write about it. Um, and actually, as I started reading um, sort of deeply into 1932, what was Stalin thinking? What was he writing? Um, what was he doing, you know, at the moment when the famine begins? I was very struck by the constant references to the Civil War and to 1917, 1919, and to this earlier period. And I realized, <clears throat> now, this is something I think happens to you when you're over 50, um, which, of course, I'm not, but <clears throat> I know, I'm joking. I am, actually. Um, uh, I think you realize that things that you know, are 10 and 20 years earlier don't seem that long ago. And you know, so just like to me, 1989, which I remember because I was a journalist working in Eastern Europe then, seems very recent and it's still things that happened that year still resonate in my head when I'm writing stuff now. Um, so it was the same for Stalin. So in 1932, what was 1917? I mean, it was still fresh in his memory and was not a, you know, we tend to look at these events, the 1930s, separately from the Civil War. But of course, to the people who were in power in, 1930, in the 1930s, the Civil War was yesterday. I mean, it was, you know, they all remembered it. Um, and, if, and the Bolshevik experience of the Civil War, which actually I spent a lot of time trying to understand and explore while putting the book together, was um, their experience of Ukraine was traumatic. Um, Ukraine had, first of all, as you, as you say, had uh, declared independence in 1917. Had, there, was a, there was a kind of team of intellectuals who had this idea that it would be a national state like Poland was in that era and recreated from the dust of the empires that crashed after World War I, and that Ukraine would also have its own state. Um, and that was the first, and the, the Bolsheviks defeated that state, actually, the Red Army did. Um, came in, tried to tried to, um, tried to do what they'd done in Russia. They created a Cheka, they created a secret police, they created, um, they began nationalization and requisition of, of land and grain. And they were then confronted in 1919 with the most extraordinary, violent, and chaotic peasant rebellion that's probably ever taken place in Europe as the Ukrainian peasants attacked them. You know, in chaotically, in, with different kinds of, in different groups, there were anarchist groups and populist groups and, you know, and, and that, and then and literally pushed them out of the country again. Um, and that moment of chaos um, actually led to the one moment, the closest moment, the whole revolution ever came to collapsing was right after this, because one of the white generals, Denikin, came back up through chaotic Ukraine and started marching towards Moscow and got within about 200 miles of Moscow. And that was very traumatic. I mean, they almost lost, and they remembered almost losing. And Stalin had spent a lot of 1919 in Ukraine. He was the commissar, a lot of the civil war, I should say, in Ukraine. He was the commissar of nationalities. This was his job in that first Bolshevik government to worry about this stuff. And so, and when he starts in 1932, when this, um, when he's, oh, and, and of course, I should add that the Ukrainians were, um, you know, they were, they rebelled against collectivization in 1932, when he starts worrying again about the, the, the political implications of this food shortages, that he starts referring back to 1917. He talks about them as petlurists using the word of, using the name of Petlora, who had been one of the Ukrainian national leaders. And he worries about hidden Pilsudskiites, meaning secret supporters of Poland. And he began, which, because Poland had played a, war, a role in 1920 as well. And so he starts seeing all these 1917, 1918 
um, conspiracies coming back, and he begins writing these very angry notes. You know, we must do something about Ukraine. There's chaos in Ukraine. You know, we must make Ukraine into a fortress of the Soviet Union using language like that. And it's all this constant reference, as I say, back to um, back to the earlier period. So I realized that that was the key to explaining why you know why the famine happened and what was the logic of it. Because it wasn't. It's always a mistake to think. I think that. It's true of Hitler as well, but that Stalin was illogical or crazy. You know, actually, there is a there was a logic to his thinking. He wasn't irrational. Um, he, you know, these things had a pattern, and the and I think the the assault on Ukraine was part of his thinking about how how to maintain his own power. Well, you also say that um, so the there, but in the course of this incredibly crazy decade. Or so from 1917, you know, through the real consolidation of Soviet power, that there was this ebb and flow of Ukrainian national pride, beginnings of school system, the codification of the Ukrainian language, and there were some moments at which accommodate the Soviets attempted to accommodate mm -hmm. this or to allow it to have a certain amount of flowering, and then this idea that. The very existence of Ukrainian self-consciousness was a cause of this instability, and like all everything that would that stood between the individual and the state had to be destroyed. That this entire project had well, to be extirpated. Yeah, no, this well. So I mean, the, the, what was Stalinism? Stalinism was an idea that there can't be any political competition, you know, that there's only one set of ideas, it's a one-party state. I mean, actually, Lenin's, you know, great um, innovation. Um, and the suspicion of other kinds of civic groups, other political parties, any, you know, anybody who is capable of organizing some kind of alternative source of power was immediately a subject of suspicion. Um, and the Ukrainians were allowed to remain you know sort of actively ukrainian longer than others partly because of 1919 and their you know the bolsheviks were afraid that the the peasant revolt had been partly caused by their harsh policies in their first occupation so they so they decided to temper it but the um um but in you know by the end of the 1920s it was already clear to them no we can't allow this separate power center to be to exist and we need to destroy it and so there was this two-pronged destruction partly aimed at the sort of national intellectuals and partly aimed at the peasantry. There's an amazing detail in, I think, when you mentioned the, an earlier famine, which I think is 1921 and 2021, that um, in desperation, the, the Soviets reached out for international aid. And who ran that program and what happened? Because it's sort of a name out of nowhere. Uh, Hoover. Right? So you mean the, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, no, the, um, the, the, they asked for international aid, and there was actually this, uh, Maxim Gorky made this great plea to the intellectuals of the world, you know, we're, we're starving, and, um, and, this, and actually the first famine was also the result partly of Bolshevik policy, but also just more generally of the war, the civil war, and so on. Um, and they invited foreigners in, and this is probably the last time there was any big foreign presence in the Soviet Union that wasn't very carefully controlled. And there was a American relief effort. Um, American Relief Administration came into came into Russia and set up feeding stations and um, uh, and and brought grain into Russia. And it was, I mean, at some level, it was a great success in that it helped prevent starvation. Hoover did run it. Um, I think this is one of the things actually that gave him the reputation for being efficient and, and you know, one of the reasons, one of the how he got elected president later on. Um, actually, he, it's also important, he was, he was, he played this role in some other countries. There's a square named after him in Warsaw because there was also famine in Poland after the, after the First World War. Um, and he was, no, he was known all over Europe for having done this. Um, but the, while the Russians, um, while the so rather the Soviet government, um, you know, was pleased to have this aid, they became increasingly suspicious of the Americans there, and eventually they checked them out, um, fearing that they were, you know, they would cause, um, you know, they were spies or they would cause 
um, they would cause political problems. But it's a, it is, it is a, it's not an entirely unknown story. There are a couple of really good books about it now. Um, and the Hoover Institution itself has a whole archive of their, right. of, of that, of that, that episode. But according to, I guess, according to you, you say that it's conceivable that millions of lives were, were saved by this, yep. by this, you know, desperate gesture that would could never be repeated. Yeah, right? no, it was a, the 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 American aid. There was some other European aid as well. There were actually some Jewish aid groups that came in at that time too, which who, who's a little bit of I use a little bit of their archives as well. Um, so. The this um, this in, incredibly interesting, incredibly complicated story of the back and forth of Soviet loosening and then tightening and loosening and tightening and and then the the central importance of Ukraine, why people were <clears throat> were fighting over it was that it was this just incredibly fertile, rich agricultural land, right? So at some point, I think you said. 37% of all the exports or grain exports of the Soviet Union, which was its leading export, right, was grain, came from this one area, which was a geographically is a relatively small part of the empire, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty big chunk. Okay. I remember yeah. that a lot of Russia is, is, is far <laughs> north and, yeah. and doesn't have... But yes, no, there's a Black Earth district in Ukraine, famously, which goes actually also in, up into Russia, um, where you can have, you know, two harvests a year and it's incredibly rich and so on. I mean, one of the other things that I learned um, while working on the Civil War was Lenin's obsession with Ukraine, um, which was all about, which of course then Stalin picks up as well, um, which was all about grain, you know, desperate to have grain, you know, we must have grain. And this is, of course, the the first Russian revolution. So there were actually lots of revolutions in 1917. There's one in February um, in 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 St. Petersburg, and then there's a second one in October, which is the Bolshevik coup d'etat. But the first revolution in February was a food riot. I mean, it, was, it wasn't even a very long food riot. It was a few days of shortages and workers in the street, and the czar gave up. You know? So the, the power of you know, the, the, the street in Moscow and Petrograd, as actually as it was then called, and then later Leningrad, was something that also was in the Bolsheviks' heads all the time. You know that we can't allow the people of the city to starve because that's you know that's really dangerous. And they were always worried about a repeat of their own revolution. You know that somebody would use the same tactics. Um, and so the obsession with Ukraine um, that you get during the Civil War and then actually all through the 20s and 30s is that you know we can't lose Ukraine because then you know the whole thing. So it was always it's an interesting and this is um, a little bit of a parallel with the present that. Moscow always saw Ukraine not as a, you know, just an ordinary problem or just a normal peasant revolt like they had several others in other parts of the Soviet Union, but it was kind of existential problem, you know, that if Ukraine goes wrong, that's a threat to us, you know, it's a threat to us, we here in Moscow. And so that was part of the, um, part of the obsession with Ukraine was also about that. Well, then there's this mystical connection, right, because the this is the the theoretical, the Jerusalem of of Russian civilization, right? Kiev and Rus, the the, the the foundational mythical place where Russian civilization got its start was actually not in Russia. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of yeah. disagreements okay. about what that means. But there's, yeah. <laughs> I, I, know, I, I hear the audience gently laughing. That's right. Some of you know. Um, no, so yeah, there was a state called Kievan Rus, which was a medieval state, and it is the foundation state for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. And what exactly that means is, you know, very disputed. Right. So, as the, as we are now, you know, literally a hundred years from the from 1917, and this is a, a signal historical event with this hor horrific death toll and all of that. But I mean, I guess the question that should be asked is um, what, what is it about uh, what has happened in and around Ukraine and with Russia since 2004, since the first stirrings of, you know, whatever, you know, however, the complicated series of revolutions and street revolutions. Street revolutions yeah and Russian response and the Russians taking a giant bite out of Ukraine in 2014. Um, what lessons should we be drawing from what you write about about the present? 
So I, I, you know, there aren't any direct lessons, and it really was a history book written to explain that piece of history and not a piece of polemical journalism. Um, I explain in the introduction that I started writing it in, um, I started thinking about it really in 2011-12, which is well before anybody else thought Ukraine was interesting. Um, and the coincidence of all that happening in 2014, and in a way, because I was working on the book, I was drawn further into writing about and thinking about why it was happening and so on. So it's really not a book about the present, but I do think that an understanding of what happened and why helps you, under, helps you understand what the relationship between Russia and Ukraine is today. And it explains, I mean, first of all, this, this ongoing Russian fear that unrest in Ukraine is not just something happening far away, but it's a problem for us, is, is, goes on very much. I mean, when in 2014, when you had all these young people waving European flags and calling for democracy and rule of law and an end to corruption and dictatorship, um, you know, Putin looked at that and he thought, right, well, that could happen here. And, you know, those people could be in Moscow. And because these are closely related states and because Kiev is so close to Moscow historically and culturally, you know, it's not, you know, it's not, it's, I can't be neutral about it. Um, and he had this huge reaction, I think even an overreaction, um, and first the invasion of Crimea and then the invasion of eastern Ukraine. Um, but he also misunderstood Ukraine in an interesting way. Um, I think he expected when he invaded eastern Ukraine, he had this idea that everybody in Ukraine, um, because Ukraine is a bilingual country, and you can go to public meetings like this one in Kiev, and people will switch back and forth between Ukrainian and Russian without really noticing they're doing it. I mean, everybody speaks both languages, so it doesn't really matter. Um, and Putin, but Putin thought that Russian-speaking Ukrainians are Russians, and that he had this very, um, you know, very formal idea of who's a Russian and who's not, and he imagined that okay, if we just if we try and carry out a coup d'etat in Odessa, which they did try, and Kharkiv, which they also tried, people will be so delighted to join us, they'll join. These are Russian-speaking cities. Um, and that didn't happen, and I think that's because he misunderstood the degree to which um, even those Russian-speaking cities are different from Russia. Um, and so the invasion of eastern Ukraine really only worked um, to the extent that you know, they can support it with Russian troops. Um, and the, they failed to achieve this you know, new mini Russian state that they wanted to create in uh, in the East. I mean, there, you know, there are a lot of the, I mean, the famine has all kinds of odd echoes in the present. I mean, it's, I think it also explains a lot about some of the pathologies of contemporary Ukraine and why, why are people so suspicious of the state? <clears throat> you know, this is a country that's unbelievably good at creating really sophisticated civic movements, fantastically well-organized, um, with lots of enthusiasm and effort and energy and so on, but it's very, very bad at creating state institutions that aren't corrupt. And one of the reasons may be that um, the famine, the, the combination of the famine and the and this assault on the national intellectuals in the 30s really eliminated um, any connection that people felt with. I mean, the state was somehow other. It was populated by f outsiders. You know, it was, and it was very cowed and wary and frightened, and nothing to admire or support. And even the, um, you know, even democratic state institutions haven't been. You know, people don't feel necessarily any warmer about those. Um, I have a memory of being in Lviv in western Ukraine at some point in the 1990s, and there was an election, um, which I was. I was interested in it, I was writing about it, and I was talking to some Ukrainian friends about it, and they were like, oh, you know, it doesn't really matter who wins. You know, we hope that the old guys win, because if the new guys win, then they'll be hungry, and they'll need to steal more, you know. So the, so the idea that there might be some ideological difference between, the, you know, was, was not, you know, wasn't great. I mean, <clears throat> and, and that problem of people having trust in the state and having trust in the system, I think, dates back to this era and explains some of the problems that Ukraine has today. So do you think that um, the, the stirring portrait that you have of the, of the sort of instantaneous rise of uh, Ukrainian national consciousness and the effort to sort of enshrine it, um, we've seen, I think, in the last 15, 20 years, um, both the positive and very negative consequences of 
that those nationalist ideas from the 20s on mm. Central and, and Eastern Europe, country by country, um, obviously much different situation in all of them, uh, but obviously in Hungary and in Poland where you live and in others that, that uh, what, what was once a sort of an optimistic sense of national consciousness has gone in an unpleasant direction. And what effect has, what, is that, does that play a role? Uh, is there some sort of uh, romantic historical memory of these moments before the Soviet boot came down that is affecting the present? So the, I mean, nationalism is a complicated concept, I mean, concept and it's a difficult word. I, I kept trying to, when I was writing the book, I kept trying to find other ways of using, I kept talking about the national movement instead of the nationalist movement because nationalism um, is something different, and you know, volumes of books have been written upon this, and I'm not going to say anything graphically original. So I apologize original. for my vulgarity. <laughs> not going to say anything graphically yeah. original right now, but so there, there is a way in which you need some kind of nationalism in order to have democracy, or you can call it patriotism, because if people don't feel like this is my state and I owe it something, or I'm loyal to it, or I care about it, even um, even if you not don't feel loyal to it then why would they participate in public life and why would they vote you know so so you need something like that and it's not an it's not an accident that we talk about liberal nationalism or the connection between liberal democracy and nationalism and you can see democracy attached to national movements I and mean, you certainly saw that in the 1990s after 1989 that was that was what you saw and then of course there is this negative side as well when it becomes ethnic nationalism and it focuses on scapegoating minorities or kicking out refugees or whatever version of that um, of that that you see and you know in Ukraine today there's very much you know both of those different kinds of nationalism are vying with one another you know and there you can find representatives of both groups there um, I think one of the things that have the memory of that sort of 1917 generation is important because they had at least this theoretical commitment to some kind of I mean they would call it a European Ukraine and you know a tolerant, liberal, I don't know if it would have been liberal democratic in our current sense of it. I mean, that a lot of Central European countries failed to become liberal democracies in the 1930s because there wasn't, the geopolitics of it didn't work. But um, but it's, but it's I think the, the that generation is considered very inspiring and important now. Um, the, the head of the Ukrainian national, sort of president of the of the the Rada, the Central Council that ran Ukraine in 1917, was a historian called Mikhailo Khrushchevsky, who, who's you know who's now got a street named after him in the center of Kiev, and which is coincidentally was the street where a lot of the activity of the Maidan in 2014 was happening. So, so yeah, they remain a kind of inspiration for younger people now. And I'm, and so a reasonably positive one. Oh, I think they're, you know, they're. they're a positive. You can find, you know, believe me, you can go back through Ukrainian history and you can find all kinds of people who you can feel positively or mm -hmm. negatively about. I mean, they're, they're very nasty nationalists. There are admirable liberal nationalists. There are Ukrainian communists. Um, so you can, you, can, you can pick which kind of Ukraine you want to find in the past. Um, right. So the, one of the ways in which you conclude the book is that you talk about what happened after the famine and the, the effort to sort of extirpate all knowledge and memory of it in, inside the Soviet Union and then how there was a kind of recovery movement among Ukrainians in the West that sort of culminated in the uh, publication of Robert Conquest's magisterial book, Harvest of Sorrow, in what, 1985, 86, something yeah. like that, which was the first real narrative account of the event, right? So, and that part of the reason that this happened is that Western journalists who were on the scene in Russia at the time uh, and knew that it was going on uh, did not blow the whistle. And I was wondering then, maybe before we... That if you could tell us a little about these two polar opposites, Gareth Jones and, and Walter, Walter Durante. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually, in some ways, a fascinating story about reputation. Um, 
So Walter Duranty was the great journalist of his era, the great Moscow correspondent. He was quoted and admired. Roosevelt <clears throat> asked, I think even before he was president, asked for a special meeting with Duranty um, because his reports from Moscow were considered so informative. Duranty probably, his writing probably had an effect on Roosevelt's decision to open up diplomatic relations with Moscow, which he does in 1933. Um, and he's sort of the doyen of the Western press corps in Moscow. He's not left-wing, actually. He's not a communist, as many journalists were um, at, that, at that point in, in uh, Moscow correspondence. And he has since had a different, he's a kind of, he portrays himself as a realist. And so he says things, he you know, uses this famous expression, you know, you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. And, you know, it's too bad about the kulaks dying, but maybe that's a, just the reasonable thing that has to happen because to make way for progress. And so he's therefore incredibly useful to the Soviet state because, you know, precisely because he's not left wing. Um, <clears throat> and he was not alone, actually, but he was, he, he was, he had also, I should say, won his Pulitzer a couple of years earlier for... He worked for the New York Times. He worked for the New York Times, sorry, important point, yes. He won his Pulitzer a couple of years earlier for reporting about these great Soviet successes in industrialization and agriculture and very great, lots of praise of collectivization. So my guess about him is that when the famine begins to bite and becomes much more severe, he, I mean, it's at least partly vanity you know, that he doesn't want to admit there's a terrible famine because actually that makes his reporting look bad. That's just a, knowing lots of journalists would guess that that's, <laughs> that's one of his motivations. You know, lots of other motive, like he's been a lot of other motivations, but I think that's important. The second, but the second journalist um, who I write about is someone completely different. He was very young. He was called Gareth Jones. He was in his late 20s. And he came to the Soviet Union. He had described himself. He was, he had a, relationship with Lloyd George, the former British prime minister. He was Welsh. Um, and he came as a, as, a, um, as a sort of, he advertised himself as Lloyd George's secretary, which he was, but not, not in any senior capacity. And because of that, the Russians gave him a, lots of special treatment. They gave him a visa. And they allowed him to take a train to Kharkiv, which is in Ukraine. Um, and which they were not letting other journalists go to Ukraine at this time. And he had some theory, you know, story he was going to go and visit a tractor factory or something. So he got on the train from Moscow to Kharkiv. And then um, halfway there, he got off the train and he started walking down the train track. And he started, he, and this is in March of 1933, at the height of the famine. And he sees everything and he keeps these very meticulous notebooks, which were because they're miraculously preserved, actually, by his sister and then later um, her children, um, which describe what he's seeing. And it's very shocking, and uh, I quote them in the book. Anyway, then he goes to Kharkiv. Um, he, I think, doesn't visit the tractor factory. Um, and then, he, and then he, he gets to Kharkiv, and then he leaves the country, and he goes to Berlin, where he holds a press conference. Um, and the press conference, um, you know, there are a number of Americans there and Germans, and he makes this big statement about the famine. There's a terrible famine in the Soviet Union, and it's particularly terrible in Ukraine. And he describes it, and he speaks about it, and it's re repeated by some other journals. Then he writes several articles himself. They appear in the British press. Um, and Walter Duranty goes out of his way to, you know, slam him down. And, and he writes an article with a famous headline. Which is, which, is, um, which is actually, you have the facsimile of it in the, you know, in, the, in the one book. of the photo sections in the book. Yeah, so you and can the, actually and the article, read it on the page. Right. The title is Russians Hungry But Not Starving. Famous title. And the, and, the, and the article sort of is very patronizing about Gareth Jones and says, well, this very energetic young Welshman and he... You know, it's very nice that he's learned a bit of Russian and so on, but, you know, he really didn't see very much, and what does he know, and so on. And, of course, at, at that point in history, Walter Duranty wins this argument. I mean, he's famous, and he writes for the New York Times, and Gareth Jones is, you know, writes for the, you know, obscure papers in, in Britain. And so Duranty, you know, and that, and that becomes... Um, the narrative is that they've had some trouble with collectivization and so on, but actually there's nothing all that terrible happening. And although there are contradictory reports, and there are lots of diplomats, one of the British diplomats who's based in Moscow then meets Duranty and sends a cable back to, to London saying, well, I've met Mr. Duranty. He thinks maybe 10 million people have died in this famine, but he hasn't decided to share that information with his American readers yet. 
Um, and lots of people know it's happening, but it doesn't somehow rise to the level of international scandal or discussion or debate the way it had in 1920. Um, so the, the Soviet Union actually at that point in history is successful at suppressing the story. And I suppose the, the, the nice thing about the story, I mean, it's, I don't know, it's nice-ish, um, is that now their reputations are so reversed. And Gareth Jones, who died very soon afterwards in a very tragic accident, actually has a you know, documentaries made about him. He, there are plaques on buildings that he worked in in Wales. He's a he's well. He's becoming better known. He's he's his life story has been written. He's got a biography out about him. His reputation has risen in the eighty years that have passed. And Durante's has sunk. And Durante is now famous as a as a journalist who went out of his way to deny um, to deny what was happening. Yeah, there's also a nice sort of cameo. Uh... From a, another a famous, very famous, ultra famous once British journalist, Malcolm Muggeridge, who was who was on the scene and was one of the other journalists who understood and reckoned with very young, reckoned with the horrors that were going on, but was too junior really to have. Well, he, he's, it's another interesting. So Muggeridge wrote a um, also wrote an account of the famine, which he sent to the his newspaper then called the Manchester Guardian. And it was printed anonymously because he still wanted to keep his. Remember that everybody, to be fair to the Moscow press corps, if you wanted to stay in Moscow, you couldn't defy the Soviet government. And everything they sent out by telegram was censored. Um, so it wasn't that easy to write about the famine with, while you were there. But he sent out anonymously and by diplomatic post an article, and it was cut. And that seems to have been partly the political views of the Guardian at that time, and partly you know, this story was happening as Hitler was rising to power. And so the, the you know, the interest of the world was just focused somewhere else. I, I just want to read one other uh, quote that you, you, you dug up because I think it, um, it, it captures the larger ideological issue that I, I began with, that, that we, are, we have a fight against, you know, forgetting. Um, and that... Uh, you quote there was a, 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 a one of these activists, uh, Lev Kopolev, who then ended up in the Gulag and met Solzhenitsyn and was a became a dissident. Became a dissident and wrote a, a great book that was published in the in the eighties. And in the, he he writes of himself in nineteen twenty nine to explain the mindset that made this possible. I think not just Stalin's mindset, but the mindset that filtered down and 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 sort of corrupted the you know, Russian polis, let's say, quote, with the rest of my generation, I firmly believe the ends justified the means. Our great goal was the universal triumph of communism. And for the sake of the goal, everything was permissible. To lie, to steal, to destroy hundreds of thousands of innocent people, all those who were hindering our work or could hinder it, everyone who stood in the way and to hesitate or doubt about all this was to give in to, quote, intellectual squeamishness and, quote, stupid liberalism. Now, it's clear at this point in the book, it's 1929, Stalin didn't have a plan, you know, it wasn't like Stalin didn't have a final solution in mind. He didn't have a plan. There was no idea that there was going to be a famine, but that this mindset was already present meant that once the decision was made in 32 to tighten, there were these people ready, people to, ready to serve his interests. And the ones who weren't necessarily ready were so terrified by the consequences of not doing so that they fell in line. Yes. No, there is a chapter in the book in which I try to explore a little bit to the extent that I can the mentality of the activists. You know, what kind of person goes into a very poor household and takes all the food out? You know, who does that? Um, and part of the answer is to do with, you know, they were because they were afraid, you know, because they were hungry themselves, because they wanted their children to have food. I mean, there were all kinds of reasons why people might have done that. But the other piece of the story is the <clears throat> the power of ideology and the power of, you know, a decade's worth of, um, you know, conspiratorial rhetoric about, you know, the peasants are taking our food and preventing our revolution from succeeding and, you know, you know, our, you know, Marxism is a science, not a theory. Why hasn't it worked the way it was supposed to? There must be a reason. It's because of saboteurs. It's because of the peasants. It's because of the enemies of the people. I mean, so it's a, it's a, 
it's a mentality that was um, created by the state very deliberately, and it's really a Bolshevik mentality um, that was part of what motivated people and made it possible to make this happen. Okay, so I guess it's well, it's time for us to turn to you and your questions. Um, let's see, sir, here in the middle. What I'm struggling with is how do you enforce a deliberate policy of starvation against a country as large as Ukraine in that mass area? And you talk about activists, but is it, I mean, are these Russians living in Ukraine? Is it the Russian army? Is it city folks against uh, village folks? And how do you motivate, and you mentioned that, but how do you do that on a scale that in 18 months, 4 million people had died from starvation? It's actually 4 million people over, over a little longer than that. It's over about three years, but the, the, the peak is in 1933. Um, uh, the answer is, it, so it wasn't, not every Ukrainian died. I mean, it's not a, it's not a, um, it, you know, it was, it was not an attempt to kill every single Ukrainian. I mean, it was an attempt to weaken the peasantry rather than eliminate it. Um, so that's, that's one point. Um, the activist teams were usually mixed, and there would be one or two people from outside, and they were um, sometimes from Russia, and sometimes they were from the Ukrainian cities. They were Russian-speaking, um, party-affiliated. <clears throat> there was there was some military involvement at some point a little earlier really during collectivization, um, and they were and but they usually worked together with some local people local activists, and the local people as I said had a mix of motives from from trying to feed their children to also ideology, um, and they were building on a sort of structure that had existed already. So there were already these activist teams who'd who'd come in to agitate and do collect and, and persuade people to do collectivization. So there were there was a structure like that of activists prepared to go, you know, who were already in place to go village by village um, in 1930, in winter of 1932, who'd been who'd been there before. Um, so it wasn't something that was created from one day to the next um, just for the famine. It was a ongoing structure. And actually one of the interesting, really interesting things, one of the um, incredibly brilliant women who helped me write this. There was a young Ukrainian historian um, who's writing a book about the um, the villages where the famine took place, who carried out, who were the activists and who were the victims, and then what happened one and two and three generations later. And so she interviewed not just survivors, but, well, there aren't many survivors left because it was too long ago, but their grandchildren. Um, and she discovered that the the sort of social and structure, social and political structure of the villages is the same. And so the children and grandchildren of the activists became the Soviet elite in the at the village level. And the, you know, and that and and remain so to this day. And and the other thing she found was that um, you know, people could still identify, oh yeah, their grandfather was on that side during the famine, and their the other grandparents were on the other side during the famine. And people actually know um, even now, so you could, you know, it was in a way a kind of, it wasn't just a famine, it was also a kind of class revolution. Um, it was a enforcement of, a, it was class warfare, actually, is the better expression, and it was a, you know, an attempt to impose the superiority of one group over over the rest. Um, and so people's motivations to join that were also about being part of the ruling elite and not part of the suffering masses, and you, you know, so it's a, it was it's a complicated story. But you do say that that they effectively closed off Ukraine. They blocked yeah, all, the, all the points. It. All the points of exit were 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 closed down, so that effectively people were trapped inside. Yeah, and they the put up roadblocks between the, the the villages and the cities, and they tried to keep the peasants out of the cities. They didn't keep them all out. Actually, they didn't succeed, but they. But the the you know so and the there are a lot of a lot of really horrific descriptions of train stations because people went to train stations hoping they would be able to get out from the train stations and wound up dying there. So there, and the and actually a lot of the messages that Stalin got in 1932 were from senior Bolsheviks riding trains around Ukraine who saw this and wrote to him and described it. Someone in the back. I have lights the... blaring in my Man, eyes, like uh, as if it was a KGB interrogation, so I can't see anybody. By you, over a little further. <laughs> yes, thank you. I wanted to ask you about Viktor Kravchenko, who you mentioned in the book. He was the Soviet official 
who wrote one of the few accounts of the time. It's called I Chose Freedom. And you mentioned how about his how he deliberately blinded himself to the realities he saw. But I wonder if you found the, his accounts, the rest of his accounts, tracked because he claimed that Soviet officials themselves were were repressed, and he was literally beaten up, and and that they, some of them were arrested if they didn't perform these orders. I mean, how how accurate is that, and how widespread was it? So I, you know, I so in the course of writing this book, I didn't make a study of Viktor Krebchenko's wider work, you know, and so I haven't thought about it. You know, I was I was focused on what he wrote specifically about the famine. Um, you know, there were all kinds of pressure put on people to do things, and some of it would have been subtle, and some of it would have been um, um, less so. Um, there is some evidence that it, you know you have to depending on which year we're talking about and who was the official and at what level um there were soviet officials who had choices i mean they didn't necessarily have to follow all the orders at all the time but you know in an era when people are um you know when there's general terror when people are afraid um of you know under constant fear of arrest um i don't think you need a lot of persuasion to make them do things well, I think you do say also that uh, what happened in 32 around Ukraine prefigures what happens beginning like in five 30s, years later when the 30s, Great Terror starts, that it was like a, a, a dress rehearsal or a trial run. Certainly, this, show certainly the, the mass arrests and the, of, of the intellectuals and anybody associated with them and their, you know, and their, their affiliates and the, the search for supposed saboteurs and the Ukrainian elite kind of is that prefigures what you get exactly as you just said, um, what you get a couple of years later all over the Soviet Union. I think you touched on this earlier, but I'm just curious, to what extent was this like an anti-collectivization, like a proletarian anti-rural event versus like an anti-Ukrainian national one? And what was the experience of say other parts of like the breadbasket that may have been in Russia or other countries? Because I see like after the Second World War, there seems to be a lot of bitterness against Ukrainian nationalism for siding with the Nazis, but in the 30s, that wasn't really there. And so what to, so what I, think it's, I think it's, there's both. Um, so for example, Kopolev writes very eloquently, I'm not going to be able to quote it off the top of my head, but about why we hated the peasants so much. And there is a, uh, he, he's trying to recall years later his experience of being a collectivization activist. And he remembers that, well, you know, we had this idea that, you know, we are the proletariat. We are the future of this nation. We want to move forward and have progress. And you peasants are keeping us from progress by hiding food and preventing us from moving forward. And you're illiterate and you have no, <clears throat> you know, you're not part of this movement and we don't need you. And there's a there's almost as we can eliminate these people these you know um, people with hay in their hair and no shoes and we can then we can brush them away and then we'll have a greater future so I think there is an anti-peasant feeling and certainly when you look at collectivization all over the Soviet Union that's the kind of attitude you have of activists everywhere and that's not specifically about Ukraine um, uh, you know the 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 specific thing that ha and and as I said also by the way the the famine is a broader Soviet famine and is also not only in Ukraine. Um, my argument is that there was there was a series of actions in you know in as I said in this winter of 1932-33 that targeted more you know more harshly on Ukraine and so that there's a higher death rates. Uh, um, in Ukraine. And at that point, you can start talking about Ukrainian nationalism. And certainly the, certainly the um, Soviet secret policemen who are writing about the peasants at that time and who are worried about peasant rebellion are you know, very conscious of Ukrainian nationalism. And as I say, Stalin himself uses this language about petlurists. You know, they're all secret petlurists. And by, when he uses the word petlura, he means he's referring to this you know, national leader of the Civil War era. And so certainly it's in his head that that's why we're doing this. Um, <clears throat> you know, whether every activist who went into every village was consciously thinking about Ukrainian nationalism, I don't know. But. Sir, down here. You've touched on the, uh, the, the class aspect of this, but was the famine otherwise uniformly applied across Ukraine? Or were there certain populations or regions that were targeted? Right, so that's a really interesting issue. Um, 
there is a group at Harvard who have spent a lot of time mapping the famine. And the map, is, the map is in the book, and then there's an explanation in one of the chapters about the significance of the map. And they looked at what were the death rates <clears throat> in, you know, at the height of the famine and where it was worst. And they you know, drew some conclusions based on that. And you know, there are d d high death rates all over Ukraine, but they are, um, they are not high, highest, actually, I should say, in the regions where there had traditionally been famine. So historically, southern Ukraine was much more prone to drought. Um, this is the steppe. You know, there are fewer trees. There are fewer other. They don't have a lot. They don't grow a lot of other things besides grain. And so it had been more. You know, in 1920, for example, that's where the worst drought was. I mean, the worst famine was. And in 1932, though, the famine is at its worst in in Kiev and Kharkiv provinces. And which are more mixed, and people had traditionally grown other things there, and they have forest and, and other things. And the, the question is why, and one of the theses is that these are the two provinces that had, where there had been the most violent anti-collectivization uprisings in 1930, and in some cases where they had been um, the most, you know, um, the most active during the Civil War. And so it looks like the famine is worse in the regions where the, where the political situation was. I mean, that's just a hypothesis. Um, the, you know, and then you can look at some other regions, for example, in the north where it's very foresty, people had other sources of food, so they could get mushrooms or um, kill birds, or there were other, other things they could eat if the food was taken away. Um, but, but, the, but the worst provinces, the highest death rates, in some cases, you know, 50 and 60% in particular, you know, in particular counties, um, is is in kind of central and western Ukraine, which is not historically a region that's prone to famine. And that's, again, because it wasn't a famine that was caused by drought. It was caused by politics. Miss, over here. Uh, so um, I have a question, actually, about the um, research process to this book and about the writing process. Um, and I was thinking, you know, how to actually conduct research to this kind of book about you know the category of Holodomor or the or the word Holodomor was actually created in the 1970s, so it was actually not there. It was not no, used. it was it exists in the 1930s. Oh, okay, so but I think that's still I mean not many uh, Soviet bureaucrats would, would use actually the word Holodomor no, or no, famine, yeah, you correct. know, in their uh, in their materials. And um, so then I was thinking, you know, how to actually like what are the problems with you know writing a book about event about which actually nobody's supposed to know later. Um, the the answer to that is nobody was supposed to know it, but there were memoirs. At, um, well, there are two there are two sources that I used, and one of them was the very rich and now rather amazing um, oral history uh, body of oral history, a lot of which was collected towards the end of the Soviet Union, and some of which was also collected in the 1940s after large numbers of Ukrainians were able to leave the Soviet Union at the end of the Second World War. And the Ukrainian diaspora in the West um, collected their, made, there were a lot of projects to collect um, information and collect memoirs um, and so on. Um, the Ukrainian, the famine also existed as a kind of, you know, although it wasn't, there was no official discussion of it ever, um, it existed as a kind of alternate history, even inside Ukraine. And a lot of Ukrainians knew it. You know, their grandmothers told them about it. Or, and the memory of it was cultivated by in people's families. And there were there were a few memoirs of um, kept at the time that were preserved. There are a couple of really interesting diaries and so on. So there is a there's an oral history set of sources. And now, of course, um, and that's by the way what Bob Conquest used in the 1980s um, for, as his most important sources. But since then, there has been this opening of the Soviet archives, um, both in Moscow and in Kiev, which have produced this. I mean, I believe me, my problem in writing this book was not the lack of archival documents. I mean, the problem was that there is an overwhelming number of them, and sorting through and trying to understand which ones to quote from and use um, took up half of my. I really began the book by reading through very carefully this archival record of 1932 and 33. What was Stalin saying? What letters was he writing to Kaganovich? What were the Ukrainian communists writing to him? Um, you know, and trying to understand that and understanding what people were thinking about. And that's all available. Um, and the, you know, the Ukrainian, this idea that all Russian archives are closed is incorrect. First of all, they were very open and easy to use in the 1990s. And quite a lot of stuff was copied and 
then printed and you know bound together in volumes and is and is available. And also the Ukrainian archives in Kiev um, and actually all over Ukraine are are. I mean, I think Ukraine may have um, one of the most open and easy to use archival systems in Europe. Um, you know, you can more or less walk in with. I mean, they might ask you for a driver's license, but they just don't even know anybody. But you couldn't do that in Germany. You know, in Germany, you have to fill out forms and say why you want to use the archive and so on. So that it's very, very easy to use. And they've, I think that's been a deliberate policy for a decade, at least, that you should, people should be able to work in it. So the, the, the book is really built on those two sets of sources. And um, you know, obviously, if I had only could re rely on official Soviet sources from the 19th you know, 30s and 40s, and I wouldn't have been able to do it. Is there anything that we haven't discussed that you think people should know about, or or that that a theme that we haven't really hit on? Oh dear, it's you know, it's, oh, it's like a 500-page the book. Sorry, which yeah. theme would you? <laughs> which yeah. theme would you like? No, I, I should say maybe I should finish by saying that. I do, um, uh, I do talk about in the, in the final two chapters sort of the historiography of the famine, how it has been used and how it's argued about in today's Ukraine and how it has continued to be. The, the, both the famine and the concept of genocide became a kind of political football in Ukraine and have been part of political arguments. And I tried to lay that out and pick it apart so that, so that people can understand it without... Um, trying to be um, partisan about it. I mean, I do think in the the broader definition of genocide as it was first conceived of by Raphael Lemkin, who is the Polish Jewish scholar who invented the word, um, the Ukrainian famine fits very easily. It's an attempt to destroy a nation, and that that was his definition. It gets much harder when you try and make it work in international law because partly because the international law was partly written by the Soviet Union. So. Um, it's more, it's more difficult, but the, but I I do tease out that argument, and I look at the you know the different uses of those various words um, right up to the present. Well, it's a magnificent book, and I'm was thrilled to have this chance to talk to you about it. And if you haven't bought it, what is the matter with you? You came here, <laughs> so you obviously should go buy it outside now. <laughs> We're talking about it and you can't get a sense of its richness without actually delving well, into you, its John. pages. So, thank you so much. And thank I you very much. Thank you. All right, that's the show. For those of you in New York, Red Famine is available from our NYPL branches and on our Simply E app. And for those of you outside the five boroughs, go give your local public library some love and look for the book there. And as always, thanks for listening to our podcast. If you're enjoying it, we'd appreciate any feedback you can leave about it in Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen.